completely unbalanced. Come on now, Brian. That's pretty awful. Oh my god. <laughs> He's unbalanced. This guy is a lunatic. These men lived in a much different time. God, we got some kooky people back in this time. It's not obvious that we are professionals. You're not paying attention. We know what we're doing. <laughs> but I'm serious. Can we start already? Hello, welcome back to Unbalanced Views. Uh, this is Brian from the editing room. Just like the first episode was a bit long, so I split it in two. I did the same with this second, or I guess at this point, part three and part four. Uh, so we're going to launch back into the final portion of Unbalanced Views of History, Robert Matthews, uh, starting right now. Thanks so much. Enjoy. So now Matthias is established at Mount Zion in Sing Sing. Matthias ran the household as the father, but he assigned work and domestic duties based on what the spirit of truth discerned in the spirit of each resident. Elijah basically puttered around in the garden. Men and boys worked the farm and women had, of course, various domestic duties. But as more residents arrived and joined the kingdom, they were assigned suitable tasks. Uh, a tailor came and so he made clothing for the children. A, a German migrant came. We don't really know much about him, but he came and became a coachman. Elizabeth Pearson, uh, Elijah Pearson's daughter, became a chambermaid. Isabella Van Wagenen did most of the cooking and she was assisted by Catherine Galloway. Anne Folger kind of ran the kitchen, directing it. And she groomed the children, sort of was kind of the caregiver for the kids. Mm -hmm. It was the kind of patriarchal household of Robert Matthews' youth. Matthias dressed as extravagantly as ever, always wearing a tailored green frock coat. He owned several of them now. And this might not seem like a big deal, but the fabric for his coats, just the fabric, not, not turned into anything, but just the fabric, cost about $14 per yard, which is about $470 today. Mm -hmm. He wore waistcoats that were made of cashmere or silk. He had ruffles at the throat and at the wrist. He wore pantal like pantaloons of the finest fabric, and he wore Wellington boots. Wellington boots were kind of a staple of the British aristocracy, um, but mm -hmm. they were not real popular with the middle class or, or obviously working class couldn't really afford them. He was never seen in public without a red sash with 12 tassels. The 12 tassels, of course, for the 12 tribes of Israel. He continued to carry his iron rod and his chain and key, and he carried a gold watch and fob that was purchased by Benjamin Folger for $115, which is just under $4,000 in today, today's money. His yep. style was ostentatious and dandified. He was kind of um, a bit out of style with the fashionable businessmen. Mm -hmm. It was a bit aristocratic. It was a bit, you know, a bit much. But everything about what he wore evoked like a, a swaggering kind of militaristic authoritarianism. Mm -hmm. It was consciously anti-bourgeois masculinity. You know what I mean? Sure, sure, yeah. sure. Um, you know, he's not wearing business suits. Matthews also basically imbued nearly everything at Mount Zion with prophetic meaning. Uh, if you, He had a three-cornered hat, and he said it was the rainbow crown of the father. The pink and white silk coat linings were uh, evocative of Joseph's technicolor coat. I'm sorry, multicolored coat. I said technicolor because my mind went to the technicolor dream coat. But, you know, yeah, yeah. the green fabric announced that the dove had arrived. I, I have no idea how that is, but that's what mm -hmm. he said. Every night, the table was piled high with foods except work. Meats, sure. poultry, and fish were all boiled. Matthias forbid roasting. <laughs> Couldn't roast food. Nope. Rice, beans, potatoes, all manner of green vegetables and fresh fruits because he was a prophet of abundance. They were all on the table, but 
There were no pies, no puddings or pastries, no jellies, sauces, spices, or compotes. There were that were all like now popular among the kind of uh, upper middle class, the middle class, right? The yuppies. It's the, the Elijah Pearsons of the world. Right. Matthias referred to this all as quote, good plain food. Now, some of his food rules were, were biblically, were biblical, obviously, like the pork thing. Sure. Right. But others, like banishing pies and, and banishing roasted meat, are very specifically, well, they're very specifically a rejection of middle-class trends. So, and also the market revolution. So traditionally, for like time immemorial, people cooked over like a fire in a hearth, right? Almost everything would be prepared in a pot over a, an open fire. Mm-hmm. So you boiled meat, you made uh, Johnny cakes or hoe cakes, cakes that were the kind of bread that most people had. None of these things were ever baked. You might go to a baker for bread, but normally your day-to-day bread, you made Johnny cakes or whatever at home. Right. But the market revolution had brought cast iron stoves into the home for the first time, along with Caribbean sugar. So so you're back to your pies, right? You're back to your pies yep. and your roasted yep. meat. By 1830, oven roasted meat and baked goods were a middle-class status symbol. So at Mount Zion, the food reflected an earlier time of rustic abundance, not this new mock men, you know, urban kind of thing, right? Mm -hmm. So even the evening meal's name was important. At Mount Zion, they ate supper, whereas the middle class had begun to practice the civilized art of dining or dinner. Mm -hmm. So they didn't have dinner. They had supper. Supper, of course. Because in 1828, Noah Webster put out his first American English his American English dictionary, and it pointed out in 1828 that dinner was the evening meal for fashionable people. Mm-hmm. Supper was the evening meal for rustics. Yeah. So again, like this is, you know, even in, in these little trivial things, like he's loading meaning into what he's sure. doing. Right. Sure. This is why I say when you say like he's a lunatic, I'm like, I don't know. He's real specific in some of the things he does. He does it in a wild way, but he's pretty well aware of exactly what he's doing. He and he's playing these rich people for fools. <laughs> you know what I mean? And he's <laughs> and he's spending their money. You know what I mean? Like he's yes. living, yes. he's living like he thinks he deserves on their dime. He's got a nice uh wardrobe, that's for sure. And 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 he's eating. Remember, like just before he left all this, like he ate like boiled beans for breakfast, and then like you know went and like yelled at the mayor at City Hall. That was the life he had before, and now he's like sitting down to a table with with uh, with poultry and beef and fish and all these vegetables and potatoes and rice and you know all the stuff. So he's come a long way. Yeah, yeah. Right. Now he prohibited Bible reading and kneeling during prayer as corrupt Christian practices. He didn't think the individual should read the Bible. You come to the Father for your ta- for your teaching. He would preach for hours, delivering truth as God's mouthpiece. He would praise obedience and flew into a rage when things went wrong. And because Galloway had died after being cursed, people knew that there were real consequences if you made him mad, right? He was especially harsh to anyone who got sick. <laughs> Yeah. Now, <laughs> don't get sick around that dude. Don't you dare get sick. Now, <laughs> yeah. now, okay. In fairness, there's an old, like you know, sort of old folk belief that uh, different illnesses were caused by kind of different bad spirits. You know, what I mean, that's like sure. the old, old world way of thinking. He kind of some of that carries over. Illness was a sign that bad spirits had gotten into your body. And Matthias said, you know, he could cast those spirits out if he wanted to. But more often, he preferred to just sort of yell at, berate, and threaten whoever allowed the devil in in the first place. And here's the crazy thing. It seemed to work. 
Elijah was uh, beset by uh, devils that caused him to have like fits, little fits when he arrived at Mount Zion. He was never treated and they left him uh, after Matthias just like berated him a bunch of times. As a Christian, Ann Folger had often been sick and she took pills uh, like a lot of wealthy women of her class did at the time. Matthias took away her pills and just demanded that she recover. And she did. Occasionally, he went beyond mere threats, like once when Isabella Van Wagenen got, got sick and he whipped her severely for, because of it. Uh, anyway, born around uh, 1797, Isabella Van Wagenen, she grew up enslaved in upstate New York, first to a Dutch family. Uh, then she was sold away from her parents and her younger brother, Peter, first to a guy named John Neely and then to an innkeeper named Shriver, finally to John Dumont, a farmer. She remained enslaved to DeMont for 18 years. And although she remembered him as kind of being a kind uh, master, she also recalled events that she said she could not reveal due to, quote, motives of delicacy and to protect the innocent. So some bad things certainly happened there. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, like particularly bad that she would be like, oh, delicacy suggests that I can't say anything about this. Right. Yeah. So she fell in love with an enslaved man named Robert. But Dumont decided he didn't like the match, so he beat Robert near to death in front of her. <laughs> Go ahead, sorry. That came out of nowhere. And then he married her to a much older enslaved man named Thomas. Uh, Accept it. Accept it, Thomas. <laughs> I mean, um, so they, they had four children. <laughs> yeah, they had four children. She doesn't marry the guy she wants. She has children out of obligation because she's been forced into this. Uh, you know what I mean? It's a whole thing. Yeah. Um, so she's miserable. And she retreated from her misery into religion. Now, when she was a kid, she remembered her mother talking about there being a God in the sky. But of course, she was sold away when she was a very little girl. Right. So that's she, you know, she had these sort of vague ideas. And then she had heard people speak of Jesus, but they spoke of Jesus the same way they, they spoke of like Washington or Lafayette and other like eminent sure, men, sure. right? So she became convinced that she was going to meet Jesus one day. Mm -hmm. Now, Dumont promised that he was going to release her one year earlier than the New York emancipation laws uh, required in July 1827. So she was expecting to get released one year earlier, but he lied. So when she realized that he had lied, and was not going to release her, she walked off. She left her whole family behind, and she went to work for a farmer named Isaac Van Wagenen. He went to John Dumont and paid for her remaining time, and then immediately officially freed her. So out of gratitude, she took his surname. That's how she became Isabella Van Wagenen. Yep. She had a vision uh, at the time of a transcendently lovely Jesus at Van Wagenen's farm. Now, uh, oh, yeah, she's nearly six feet tall. She was quite formidable um, when she moved to New York City in 1828. While there, she met two siblings she didn't even know she had. Around the same time, she managed to secure a writ and had Dumont and Dr. Gedney serve for illegally selling her son, Peter, into further bondage in Alabama against New York mm. law. Now, the New York uh, manumission law or emancipation law say basically any anybody who was enslaved in New York in 1827 was supposed to be freed, right? I'm sorry, in 1828, were supposed to be freed. Uh, no questions asked. You could not sell somebody to a state that was going to continue having slavery. But they decided right. to sell her son, Peter, down the river to Alabama, you know, um, thinking, well, who's going to catch us, right? <laughs> she, I mean, the fact that this 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 woman who's only been free for a year managed to get a, a writ of habeas corpus 
in order to demand that they return her son is no small feat. I mean, this was like, this is a big deal that she pulled this off because most former slaves would have just been dismissed out of, out of hand. I include this just to tell you something about her character, that she, Mm -hmm. that she was persistent enough to do this. She took on the power, some of the most powerful people and she won her son back. Mm -hmm. On May 5th, 1832, back to that day again, when she opened Elijah's 4th Street door to find Matthias outside, she immediately recognized him as the Jesus from her vision all those years earlier. No way. She had expected Jesus to be a loving God, but when the pious Elijah Pearson believed, she did too. So perhaps because- Now the story gets all spooky. I told you, it's a great story, man. It's a great story. It's all spooky on me. Yeah. (laughs) So- Maybe because her own life was shaped by the most perfect patriarch, that is slavery, right? I mean, slavery is like the perfect model of the patriarchy. She became kind of suspicious of certain changes that were happening in the kingdom, especially changes between Matthias and Anne Folger. Changes that, to Isabella, reflected devilish lust, not divine patriarchy. Yeah. I think she saw something. Shortly after Matthias's arrival, Anne abandoned the simple dress of a Christian and instead descended the stairs each morning, quote, dressed with much taste and highly scented, end quote. She sewed fancy nightcaps for Matthias, and she gave him a gold ring. She'd ask Isabella what Matthias thought about different things, and then she would speak those ideas to him as if they were her own. Oh, you know what she's doing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. She's she's like, what's his favorite soda? <laughs> oh, uh-huh. he likes Sunkist. And then she then later on she'd slip in. She's like, would you like a Sunkist? I just love yep. Sunkist. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yep. yeah, yeah. It's my favorite. Like, oh my gosh, we have so much in common. <laughs> <laughs> she would spend hours playing piano with him, and she'd walk with him in the garden, uh, having these long religious conversations. But eventually, the religious conversations turned personal. Now, mm-hmm. Matthias had long rejected marriage based on free choice and romantic love. Fathers should arrange marriage for their children. He preached uh, now about how marriage was the unification of compatible or match spirits. After a few weeks, Matthias revealed a great secret to Anne. Before they had ever met, Matthias had had a vision of her as the mother of the kingdom. Mm -hmm. Now, Isabella, of course, saw the truth. It was clear to her that a devil had entered Anne Folger. Although Isabella believed that the spirit of truth would defeat any ordinary devilry, the devil in Anne Folger assaulted him with perfumes and flatteries and all of the feminine charms of a sexually charged temptress. Anne and Isabella shared a room, but Isabella repeatedly found her talking with Matthias by the fire late at night. After Matthias had revealed his secret, a couple weeks after Matthias revealed his secret, Anne revealed one of her own, the spirit had informed her that Matthias was her match spirit. He was to be her husband, and they would have a son, and their son would be the Messiah. (laughs) Soon after she revealed this secret, Uh Anne bathed Matthias. Now, Americans did not take regular baths yet in in the 1830s. They were smelly as shit. They stunk to high hell. D.O. everywhere. No deodorant. Yep. They didn't shower. They didn't have showers, but they didn't bathe. Yep. Oh, disgusting. Yeah, it's pretty bad. But now at Mount Zion, everybody took a bath weekly and they would ritually wash their their hands and stuff. So they were actually cleaner than most. Mm -hmm. The weekly baths that they had were communal with the men assisting men and women assisting women. 
very Greek like. Yeah, but it's pretty. I would imagine pretty commonplace for the time. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you would it would be probably untowards for a woman to assist a man. So you know, you right. need you need somebody to help you scrub your back or whatever. You know, you got your you you have your man friend who does it for you. You know, Correct. yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and you know, you need somebody to bring in warm water and stuff like that. So you know, whatever. Anyway. Um, they these weekly bands were communal with the men assisting men, the women assisting women, but they would all be naked in the same room when they did this. But again, different times. But mm-hmm. this time, when Matthias got in the tub, Anne walked in and she closed the door behind her, leaving Uh-oh. the king. Yeah, leaving the kingdom in shock, staring at the closed door for a long time. Now, oh, yes. while Anne talked of marriage and scrubbed Matthias's body, her unsuspecting husband was at a house on 3rd Street trying to fix his crumbling business interests. So... Ah, that whore. (laughs) So, so... How you feeling, Mike? (laughs) (laughs) Man, that dirty little, that dirty little thing, you know? It's, uh, I told, I, I, look here, look, I told you, there's a, there's a little little bit of a slog in the beginning just to get some of the, the, the important concepts out there, but boy howdy, this the story gets rolling. All right. <laughs> All right. Back to the tub. <laughs> well, we're leaving them in the tub. All right. We're in, in the tub. The kingdom's finance finances were largely obviously provided by Elijah and Benjamin Folger, you know, Anne's husband. But by the fall of 1833, the link between the kingdom and Benjamin in particular was kind of problematic. Elijah rented a home at eight, number 8 3rd Street, and it was available for kingdom members to use. Uh, and Benjamin spent most of the fall of 1833 living there. For about a year before this, the spirit, that is Matthias, guided all the business decisions. The spirit told Elijah to buy certain stocks. And then Benjamin bought those certain stocks. The spirit told Elijah to buy real estate. So then Benjamin bought real estate. Then bought the real estate. Right. Then Elijah (laughs) got kind of interested in some new patented machines, but they invested in a new stove that Pearson uh, named the Nay Plus Ultra Kingdom Stove. Oh, yeah. That's the top of the line model. Sounds like it. Nay Plus Ultra. Uh, Basically, these all lost money. And they damaged Benjamin's reputation and his finances. So he practically moved to Manhattan to try and mend his reputation. One day in November, Elijah and Anne arrived at Third Street, and they told Benjamin he had to give Anne in marriage to Matthias. (laughs) If you can imagine. Um, Sorry, I just, I love this scene. Like, just one day out of the blue, they show up where he's like trying to, to put his like, crumbling business empire back together and they're right. like and like elijah and Anshul, but they're like okay so just so you know i'm marrying i'm marrying matthias while you're down here <laughs> uh in the most un, in the, the most understated sentence that i've written in this entire thing in shock and anger he listened to them uh-huh. <laughs> and, yeah. and then quote there was a terrible to do nearly all night end quote but by morning he relented once he was promised, he would receive a match spirit for himself as well. Ooh. So then 
Benjamin has to watch Anne and Matthias marry. Like he has to be there. And he oh, tries to God. talk Anne. He tries to talk Anne into like not going through with it. And she uh-huh. slaps his hand away like a child. And she's like, behave yourself. Right. And so he's like, he's he's like a dog with his tail between his legs. Get in line, dude. Right. So they marry and they move into his room at Mount Zion. Oh, and where is he at? Oh, he's there. He's not allowed to be in the room anymore. They've kicked him out of it. So, I mean, it's it's just a full power play, right? Wow. From then on, uh, the father, you know, Matthias, insisted mm-hmm. that Anne be called mother. Benjamin sulked around and snuck off to sort of deal with his collapsing business. Isabella described him as, quote, like a dog with its tail singed or one drawn through a gutter, end quote. In January 1834, Benjamin was sent to Albany to pick up Matthias's children. Now, Margaret relented after Benjamin gave her some money and promised that he was that they were going to send a monthly stipend. So she sent, um, you know, Robert's son and their daughter, Isabella, who was then about 20. Now, Isabella was supposed to go to Manhattan and return to Albany in a few weeks. As they left, Folger kissed Isabella uh, sort of on the cheek, gave her a gold watch, and then helped her into the carriage. No one bothered to mention that Isabella had just gotten married about a month earlier to a comb maker named Charles Laisdell. Isabella told Benjamin about the marriage when the coach stopped for the night uh, at an inn. But uh-huh. but after dark, Benjamin snuck into her room uh, and they had sex anyway. I love it. Uh, Go big guy. Go big guy. So he slept with Matthias's daughter. Yes. <laughs> Take my wife. I got your daughter. Right. So they arrive at Mount Zion and Isabella Laisdell refused to kind of submit to the father's authority. And she refused to call Anne mother, like right off the bat. Um, she's like, you know, what are you, are you kidding me? I have to submit to your authority. You've been gone for years. Like you, you abandoned us. Like, what am I right. supposed Okay. Matthias, as I'm sure you can imagine, handled this very well. No, he was enraged. Like he went nuts. Right. But then Benjamin, before he could do anything, Benjamin admitted his sin from the night before. Mm-hmm. Matthias uh, proceeded to whip his daughter that night uh, and then whip her again the next morning. But okay. then he decided he was going to dissolve her marriage to Charles Laisdell and marry her and Benjamin that very day. Okay. Yeah, problem solved. That's it. So after the marriage, the couple started to go up the stairs to uh, consummate their, you know, their, their new bliss. But the prophet called them back and he started laying down moral rules and spiritual guidance, but he kept leaving these long pauses. So mm-hmm. Benjamin uh, would sort of stand up and start to turn out of the room to go up the stairs. And, and then he would, would st- keep and he was, yeah, and he would keep going. And he just did it over and over and over, uh, basically like to, 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 well, intentionally, you know, to humiliate yes. him. Right. Yes. Yes. Uh, Isabella Van, the reason we know about this was because Isabella Van Wagenen wrote about it uh, or talked about it. And she said she just remembered she giggled from the doorway through the whole thing because she sort of knew what he was doing. And, you know, she sort of laughed at his humiliation. So finally, everyone seemed happy, uh, except for one person, Catherine Galloway. Now, Catherine Galloway, nobody could quite understand why she seemed glum all of a sudden. And she pulled Isabella aside and she asked if maybe someone should go to Benjamin and ask him who he preferred in the dark. Her or his new wife. So 
Benjamin's been sleeping with Catherine Galloway. (laughs) Isabella did not bother to repeat the question or act on it in any way, right? So, (laughs) yeah, good stuff. So so Benjamin's been sleeping with Catherine Galloway. Now he's married to Matthias's daughter. It's a whole thing. All right. Right, right, right. So, of course, after after, uh, Anne becomes the mother, uh, Anne Folger basically stopped all of her household work and started telling the members of the kingdom, and this is great, she started making sure she told everyone how... Matthias alone could, quote, enter the most holy of holy, and that only he could penetrate to the sanctum sanctorum, end quote. Wow. That's sex, very sexual. Uh, thoughts, Mike? Uh, hey, I've tried to enter the holy of holy on a couple of occasions. Never had been successful. Um, so more power to this guy. It's, uh, I like how she says on, only he could penetrate to the sanctum sanctorum. Um, <laughs> To which I'm like, this dude fucks. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Good for him. God bless. <laughs> I mean, and can you, just, I'm sorry, but can you even imagine living in this place where, like, all of a sudden this woman's just like walking around, like, whew, I'm telling you, he's the only one that can penetrate to the sanctum sanctorum, if you know what I mean. He's the only man that can enter the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies. That's funny. Three weeks later, uh, Benjamin decided to finally contact Margaret Matthews, sending her a letter telling her the children were staying and they weren't going to send her any more money. <laughs> You're cut off. <laughs> You're cut off. Well, like the one-time payment that I gave you to steal your daughter, basically. <laughs> so Charles Laisdell decided to investigate because, you know, his wife has been gone all this time. And he's like, what is going on? So when he arrived, Elijah basically just paid him some money to go away. Laisdell began spreading the word about what he saw in Sing Sing, and it caused quite a stir. Like, you know, I mean, he he visited over a number of days uh, trying to convince them to let let Isabella leave and all this. And they were like, she's and she, they never let him see her or her see him. They right. just they just kind of just kept pushing him out. And finally, um, Elijah just said, maybe we should just give him some money and he'll go away. Like, maybe we can buy her from him, essentially. Um, <laughs> So he spreads the word about what he sees. Cause you know, I mean, obviously there's going to be some things there that don't seem right. Um, Laisdell uh, ultimately got a writ of habeas corpus to free his wife and a tribunal, a tribunal met to discuss the matter uh, at a local tavern. Now, Isabella Laisdell did not want to go with him. She wanted to stay, uh-huh. but Charles produced a marriage certificate. So because he had a marriage certificate, he essentially owned her. Um, and so the, the tribunal oh. was like, Sorry, it doesn't matter that you don't want to leave. He, That's right. He's got that piece of paper. Now, a crowd gathered at the tavern because they had been hearing these rumors and they were started to sort of rumble and shout about uh, tarring and feathering Matthias and his followers. But cooler heads prevailed. And a few days later, uh, after Isabella was, was sent off with, with Charles, uh, Matthias married Benjamin and Catherine Galloway. You know, so I'm always down for a good tarring and feathering, you know that? Sure, sure. Yeah, no, it's a, it, we should have more of those. More tarring and feathering, I yeah, think. Or I, I agree. Needed. That's how you get politicians to do stuff, is you, yes. you you tar and feather one, and then you threaten it to others. And, no. you know, you, you don't necessarily get your way, but you can certainly get action. Yeah. Like, we want you to do something. We're going to tar and feather Ted Cruz. And, to, and so now you know we're serious. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I was right. thinking AOC, but anyway, I'm sure you were. Um, now, people started showing up at Mount Zion 
beating on the doors and demanding that Benjamin throw his guests out. But every time people showed up, Benjamin and Anne would answer the door as if they were still a couple and they would kind of assure everybody everything was fine and refuse to do like to throw anyone out. Right. By mid-March, Anne was pregnant. She believed with the Holy Child and she would occasionally travel to Manhattan to the house on Third Street. That spring, a family called the Thompsons joined the kingdom. Mr. Thompson didn't really believe the supernatural stuff, but he really, really liked the idea of living somewhere that men could be as comfortable as possible. (laughs) His wife, uh, Elizabeth, had suspicions about the unusual sexual relations in the house, and she asked Anne Folger if she slept with Benjamin when she made these trips to New York. Mm -hmm. Anne said yes, but she was really confused by the question because she said, yeah, but he's like sleeping with a child. I sleep with him like a mother would with a son. So do with that what you will. (laughs) She explained, quote, the spirit worked with Matthias, but it didn't work with Benjamin, end quote. So (laughs) I think there's a lot you can kind of read into all this. Like, Uh you know, Matthias gets the job done. Mm. Benjamin does not. Does not. Does not. Uh, So the Thompsons left the kingdom a few weeks later. Mr. Thompson said, quote, there is too much changing of wives here. <laughs> and, <laughs> and he sort of went on to say something like, and I'd rather like mine and would be sort of sad if I lost her. And Elizabeth was convinced that the prophet was going to match her with Benjamin because he was unhappy with the plain looking Catherine Galloway uh, or possibly even Elijah, which terrified her <sighs> in with his long fingernails. And, you know, <laughs> uh, in June, Benjamin started to worry that maybe the prophet was a fraud. <laughs> it's, been, it's, been, it's been a couple years he started to think maybe this guy's not legit sink in. his his friends were like of course he's a fraud like what is wrong with you but they they offered their friend they, they, they said they'd help in any way they could right so i i'm starting to wonder if this guy is legit yeah, yeah. right like i can't imagine why would you what makes you think that that's crazy <laughs> clearly a prophet uh Benjamin uh, returned to Mount Zion. He grabbed Anne and he announced, I'm taking you and the children away. He called Matthias, quote, a damned imposter, and I will have you out of my house, end quote. Anne told him, quote, I am not your wife. Behave yourself. And then she hid behind Matthias. Just then, Elijah and the Folger's son walked in carrying a weeding knife. Benjamin took a grab at the knife and yelled, quote, damn you, I'll stab you. But the boy threw it down before Benjamin could really get his hand on it. So instead, he grabbed the poker from the fireplace and yelled, quote, I'll split your brains out, end quote. Matthias, <laughs> yeah, Matthias went for his double-edged sword and swung oh, it around. Yeah, swung it around saying, quote, let that spirit be destroyed. Oh, no. <laughs> never, never breaking character, which is my favorite. He's, right. he's got an evil spirit. <laughs> he's <laughs> not not he might have legitimate grievances no 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 no. he's been uh, possessed by a spirit. bad spirit somehow yeah yep yep, yep. Uh, elijah intervened and benjamin left but he demanded that Anne prepare to leave and that he was coming back to get her so when he returned he was much calmer but he still was insisting on on her leaving but she took him to the north wing for a private talk closed the door and when he came out he was, as Isabella described him, quote, like a tamed elephant, subdued. Mm. That night, Anne and Matthias slept together in the parlor. 
But in the morning, Anne got up and visited Benjamin in his bedroom. Oh, she is a filthy little thing. The Sing Sing villagers, however, had grown pretty tired of the kingdom at this point. And a group arrived very early to harass them. Actually, and this is pretty funny, there's a guy named Elephant Taylor who he like goes to the door and he tells the prophet, the police are coming for you. They have a warrant. But what you should do is shave your beard and then they won't recognize you. And so he like convinces him to shave his beard. Um, now, what uh, the prophet, of course, doesn't know is that Taylor has essentially made a bet that he's going to bring the beard, that he's going to bring Matthias's beard down. And he's like made right. this wager with all these people that he could get his beard, you know. Um, so, <laughs> so Matthias, like fearing that he's going to be arrested, goes and shaves his beard off. Uh-huh. But Elephant Taylor does not manage to get the beard. Uh, he just managed, like, but everybody, of course, sees Matthias come out with no beard on. And, uh, and, and then they just like mock him. They think it's hilarious because they're all in on the joke, right? Uh, and anyway, Matthias, because he thinks that there's a warrant, he decides to flee to Manhattan in order to avoid more trouble for the time being. So gotcha. he loses a little face, right, with the, with the, sure. the kingdom. Sure, sure, sure. Now, now, Elijah Pearson was a pretty grisly sight at this point. His teeth had rotted in his head. He was prematurely Ooh. old. He was nearly blind and his fits had returned. So he's, you know, he has these like, yeah, he has these sort of um, twitch, twitchy fits. All of his business schemes had failed and his partner in the Nay Plus Ultra Kingdom stove sued him to recover several hundred dollars. Um, Uh At this point, Elijah, clearly deranged, claimed that he now possessed the spirit of truth since Matthias fled to Manhattan. Uh, Immediately, pretty much, Anne, Benjamin, and Isabella are like, uh, yeah, we're out of here. And they went to Manhattan as well, leaving Catherine Galloway and the children and Elijah at Mount Zion. Anne returned to tell Elijah that he had finally met his own, or he finally had his own match spirit. Francis Folger, his old friend, you remember from the very beginning of all this, uh-huh. of today, the, the one who would like send pairs of women in to, uh, yep. to yeah. So, and returned to say to tell Elijah that he had his own match spirit, Francis Folger, his old friend. Elijah went to her home in Oyster Bay and was greeted at the door by Francis and her husband, Reuben. Elijah, rotten teeth, nearly right. blind, prematurely old, long fingernails, you know, scraggly hair, shows up there. She's greeted by this woman and her husband. And he said, you know, I'm here because you're my match spirit. You're to, we are to be married. <laughs> like... Oh, oh, hi, Reuben. Yeah, you're, you need to come with me. We're going to be married. We're like, uh, you know, that's our thing. So not surprisingly, they're pretty angry about it. And they told him in no uncertain terms to, to leave and not come back. Right, 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 right. So he went back. And of course, he's pretty despondent because, you know, he's been rejected by his match spirit now. Mm-hmm. By mid-July, Elijah's fits were pretty severe. And, and worse, if Anne was nearby when he had a fit, he would grab at her hand. And he would Uh-oh. start. He would start babbling, and and my wife, my wife. Now, Isabella noticed that as he held her hand with his one hand, he would fumble in his trousers with the other <laughs> hand when he Ooh. when he did this. He was getting his jollies off. <laughs> he's clearly deranged. Yes, playing a little pocket pool yes. while he's holding his lady's hand. Yes. What a yes. creepo! So, on July twenty eighth. Matthias, Elijah, Anne, and Catherine uh, Galloway all sat down to supper, and the prophet served blackberries. Catherine and Elijah ate all of their berries. 
Elijah had a second serving. Anne only ate two, and Matthias, who normally loved blackberries, ate none. Now, uh oh, red now flag. The next, <laughs> what, what, why, whatever do you mean, Mike? <laughs> we'll see if he's the only one that wakes up the next day. <laughs> well, Anne only ate two. <laughs> okay, well, she's she might be deathly ill. She, she might she might be in on it. The next day, Elijah collapsed, vomiting and writhing on the ground. Mm-hmm. He was sicker than usual, sure. and his putrid smell was too much for anyone <laughs> except Isabella. Because sicker than usual, <laughs> like this guy's. <laughs> <laughs> like he's writhing on the ground, puking everywhere. Well, a little sicker than he usually gets. It's, uh, yeah, it's he's, I mean, the, the man yeah, is not bastard. well. Poor bastard. The man is not well. No, um, not, not I also well. like that he smelled too bad. Like nobody could do anything. Like nobody could get close enough to him to help him he because he smelled, so, he smelled so bad. <laughs> Except for Isabella, who like, I mean, again, like this is a woman who has been a slave who has, yeah. has, she has dealt with some shit. And she's like, it's hard to not even imagine her just being like, my God, white people, I can do, like, what is wrong with you all? Just get the man, you know what I mean? Like, yes. like come on, just grab this dude. We got, we got to, we got to get him out of his own sick. You know, that'll, <laughs> that will help. If we can get him out right. of his own sick, it'll help. Anyway. Give him a new pair of pants. Yeah, right. So anyway, Isabel is the only one that can help him. Uh, so she does what she can to clean him up. And then that night, he lost control of his bowels. Again? <laughs> now, now. Oh, God. Always. Compa- is... <laughs> yeah, I know. This, this is the man worth $2.5 million. There you go. Okay. Now, always compassionate. <clears throat> M- Matthias uh, re- refused doctors and medicine. He took over Elijah's outdoor work and he sent, uh, I'm sorry, and Anne sent Isabella to assist him. No, which basically left no one there to care for Elijah as he was bedridden, covered in his own vomit and his own filth. You know, and the only person who could help him has now been sent outside to help uh, Matthias because, you know, he, he couldn't handle whatever work Elijah was doing, which, you know, could not possibly have been very much like the man is deranged. Oh, my God. So uh, oh my God. I know this could be surprising, but by August 6th, he was dead. Oh, imagine that. And here's that, here's hey, hold, on, to, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold yeah, on, hold yeah. on. That room had to smell like a pile of shit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, it's, it can't be good. Uh, whoever the poor bastard is who found them, holy mackerel! Can you imagine that? The yeah, stench. it's. I mean, I'm sure it was Isabella. Like, I mean, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm sure. And and this this might be. Like as ridiculous as all of this has been, this might be the just the chef's kiss on top of it. After he died, <laughs> Matthias gathered the kingdom together and said, "He died because he lacked faith <laughs> <laughs> and soap." Yeah. But I mean, <clears throat> I love that that like all of this. The man's been writhing in his own sick for days, and Matthias is like. It's his own fault that he is dead. You know what I mean? Like this, <laughs> this guy, he just didn't believe hard enough. You know, Jesus. the, the man who announced he was going to raise his wife from the dead 
has just been accused of, of not having enough faith. Anyway, so a coroner's jury uh, determined that Pearson died of natural causes. His body was buried at Morristown, but the villagers of Sing Sing were pretty convinced something criminal had happened. So they disinterred Elijah's body, and it was inspected by members of the Pearson family, these father and son team that were doctors. They sent Elijah's stomach and the contents to a professor of chemistry in Manhattan for analysis, but they wrote a report saying they were convinced the evidence showed Eliza Pearson was poisoned. Mm-hmm. Damn blueberries. Black, but yes. Black Me- Meanwhile, the kingdom was entering its final month at the Third Street home, and Anne, now six months pregnant, was splitting her nights between Benjamin and Matthias. <laughs> so, in, uh, in mid-September, in fact, Catherine found Benjamin and Anne alone in Isabella's bedroom. And I'm just going to stop there. There's so much to unpack just in that sentence. Mm-hmm. In mid-September, Catherine found Benjamin and Anne alone, not in either of their rooms, but in right. poor Isabella's bedroom. <laughs> like, yes. like yes. poor Isabella's yes. like, I got to deal with with, uh, with vomity, shitty Elijah, and then y'all fucking <laughs> on my bed? Like, how messed up is this whole situation? Okay. Anyway, in mid-September, Catherine found Benjamin and Anne alone in Isabella's bedroom. She complained, quote, what a devilish shame it is that a woman wants two or three men, end quote. Matthias denounced Anne as a harlot. Some days later, Anne addressed Benjamin as husband at breakfast. So Benjamin began crowing to Matthias about who really was the better man. (laughs) And and so Matthias said, well, ask her, Anne. Anne replied, Matthias had merely corrected a complaint she had. Quote, she had a falling of the womb. And that... (laughs) And that was what she meant by his ability to penetrate the sanctum sanctorum. Oh, my God. She declared now that she found far more pleasure with Benjamin in every other way. So Benjamin offered Matthias $530 in gold coins and $100 from the Bank of the United States to go west, buy a farm for the kingdom. And Isabella and two others agreed to go with him. And as soon as they left, Benjamin went to the police and reported that he'd been defrauded and robbed of $630. The police arrested Matthias without a struggle. Uh, They charged him with embezzlement and fraud. The case became like an unprecedented scandal, right? So at the time, New York, there had been newspapers, newspapers around for a long time, but um, there was a new thing called the penny press, these penny press newspapers. And they're called that because they cost a penny. Uh, They were cheap, cheaply made. And they spread the story of the bizarre sexual arrangements at the kingdom like wildfire, right? Mm-hmm. Now, penny papers were this new innovation that based, uh, the, the idea of success was based on mass circulation, right? Until now, newspapers had been relatively expensive. They were like six cents instead of one penny. So six times more expensive. So they targeted the kind of Pearl Street, Wall Street set. They would have commodity prices and you know that sort of stuff. They didn't really... Um, nothing like what we would think of today as the news. They might have political stuff. Mm-hmm. Penny press papers printed police blotters, crime stories, and gossip sure. to appeal gotcha. to a mass audience, right? Yes. So if they're going to sell it for a penny, they need to sell a lot of them to make it worthwhile. And Correct. so they go with these kind of pop stories. It's really, it's almost like reality TV versus prestige TV today, right? Um, yes, yes, yes. yes. Sure. Okay. So Matthias's kingdom 
with its uh, allusions to murder, with the sexual depravity, with the religious delusions. It was perfect fodder for the penny presses. They carried daily updates and papers around the country reprinted and spread this story. So if you look at the newspapers from like 1834 to 35, the kingdom was like one of the biggest stories there was anywhere. Isabella Van Wagenen convinced Margaret Matthews to help her husband and Matthews retained Henry Western and Nye Hall, two of the best and most respectable lawyers in New York, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, I, I mean, again, Isabella, I don't know how she convinced Margaret Matthews to do anything for her husband, but she did. Uh, Benjamin Folger, on the other hand, started to worry about his reputation if the, the full truth came out. You know, he's a little concerned about what his reputation would look like if people know that he's been cuckolded by, by Matthias, that he married Matthias's daughter who was already married to another man, then married Catherine Galloway, then went back to Anne and whatever other things he's been doing. You know what I mean? It's, it's not a great uh, look on him. You know what I mean? Right. So he starts to worry about all that. Plus of course, this would really damage his wife. Right. Uh, So he worried that Isabella could sort of damage his reputation. So what's he do? He makes a, takes out a notification, notification in the paper and claims she tried to poison him. Gets her locked up. Well, she sued him for slander. Mm-hmm. Now, in the lead up to the trial, it's all just like accusations and counter accusations. There's mudslinging and mm-hmm. it's all sensationalist journalism. I mean, uh, this is all new. So there's not really uh, you're not sort of at a place where like, people don't really know what to do. because They're just they're clamoring for whatever they can get. But this is all a whole brand new thing. People never really did like crime reporting before. This is all new. Right. Um, uh, anyway, there's all this mudslinging and people just can't get enough of it. I mean, it's just fascinating. By the time the case actually went to trial, the district attorney knew he could not make these charges stick. Like he couldn't charge Matthias with embezzlement. Like he had Matthias has witnesses that said he was given the money. It's going to be a hard sell. You know what I mean? Sure. He talks to Benjamin and Benjamin, of course, is worried that all the truth of their sexual stuff was going to come out. And so he didn't want that to come out either. So Benjamin publishes a notice in the paper that he wanted to drop the charges so he could just move on with his life, right? That's, that's sort of the thing he puts out there. I don't, I'm taking the high road. I don't want to go through a long trial. We've yep. suffered enough. Let's just drop the charges. You know, that sort of thing. Right. The district attorney dropped the charges in court. Besides, he said, Matthias was now wanted for murder in Westchester County for killing Elijah Pearson. One reporter said Matthias was dressed like, quote, a cross between a drawing room dandy and a Spanish or Italian brigand, end quote. <laughs> I'm not quite sure what either one of those are, but I think I can figure it out. Well, a Spanish or Italian brigand, they're like a, a, a corsair or a pirate, you know, okay. a swashbuckler. Yeah, I got you. Yeah. Yeah, pirate's the wrong word, you know, more more like a highwayman, but, but you know, like of the fancy class. And the first one was dandy is a fashion. It's somebody who's very fashionable. Okay. Oh, yes, you're right. Yeah, dandy just um, means just means somebody who who pays a lot of attention to sort of usually cosmopolitan European type fashion. So he's somewhere between very fashionable and you know like a a 16th century Spanish pirate. You know, you know very flamboyant. I would yeah, say. Yes, yes, yes. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. You're not going to miss this guy. He's he not going to miss this guy. He is unmissable. So yeah. <laughs> here's the thing. The uh, district attorney is trying to like drop the charges. Matthias demands a full jury trial. He's like, I will not let you drop these charges. He wants the the trial to exonerate himself. Yeah, yeah. No, go ahead. Sure, 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 sure. No, 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 no. I was just laughing. 
Yeah, it's fantastic. He's like, I, sh- I, I will not allow these charges to be dropped. Um, so, uh, but obviously, like the charges were dropped, and the the press, of course, were like devastated by this. Right, the, this all of these these like petty press reporters are like, are you kidding me? After all this, we're dropping the charge. Like, there's no trial. So the case is dismissed, and then Matthias was sort of immediately remanded to Westminster to Westchester County. The murder trial was set for November 25th, but a kind of uh, unforeseen series of events ended up postponing the trial till April. Uh, and and in the meantime, actually had her baby, and it was a girl, not the you know Messiah son. So anyway, sure, 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 gotcha. But that's what you know. That, that I just throw that in as a side note. Anyway, four months from November till April, Penny Press papers printed whatever little like scraps they could learn about the kingdom in order to appease a public that just wanted to know more. So while all the papers were hostile to, you know, to Matthias, I mean, obviously nobody was sympathetic to this guy. They all kind of differed on why they were hostile. And the why reflected tensions in the country about all of these many social changes, right? Again, not all that different from today, except that like this is the dawn of all this. Where you know today different media outlets reflect their own sort of biases reporting on the same story. It's it's really similar things. Like the reason that these different papers give for why Matthias is bad kind of tells you something about their their own biases more so than it does anything else. You know what I mean? The differences over why Matthias was a scoundrel uh, kind of reflected big these big questions, right? Among radical working classes, the Finneites and high church conservatives, between Democrats and Whigs between deists and reactionaries. So conservatives thought Matthias represented the destructive forces of egalitarian individualism. Whigs assured their readers that Matthias's swift downfall confirmed that America's commercial interests were just fine. That's what they cared about. Others concerned themselves with worries about fanaticism. Christian conservatives linked Matthias to one of their favorite targets, Thomas Jefferson. Christian conservatives hated Jefferson. They had long complained about, quote, the godless disorder proclaimed in the Declaration of Independence, end quote. Matthias, they said, was every bit as dangerous as Jacksonian politicians, abolitionists, and anyone else who wanted to destroy the nation the way they thought Jefferson did, with, quote, their favorite doctrine regarding individual liberty and equal rights, end quote. Mm -hmm. Christian conservatives hated individual liberty and equal rights. Still others claimed, quote, Matthias's followers had succumbed to a baleful spirit of fanaticism of the kind that had turned the evangelized parts of northern and western New York into a moral and spiritual wasteland, end quote. For many middle-class journalists, the situation was, was obvious. This was a disreputable mechanic and an ex-slave who were taking advantage of their social betters. Matthias, meanwhile, preached truth from his cell. Before the trial, he issued a prophecy commanding farmers to put down their plows as the ground would not thaw until he was freed. But if he was found guilty, an earthquake would destroy White Plains, the site of the trial. That's pretty great. That's just like, might as well throw it up against, throw everything against the wall, see what sticks. Sure, sure. Yeah, you know, and if I'm found guilty, an earthquake. Yes, an earthquake. Yes. You know, sure, why not? Level the whole place. Yeah. Now, when it was all said and done, and I mean, Keep in mind, these these papers have been reporting on this on like the upcoming trial constantly for for six or five months at this point, longer than that, really, when you go to the first trial at the start of the. But but by the time they actually get to the trial, the trial only lasted four days at the very start. (laughs) Matthias stood up and complained about the grand jury proceedings, yelling, quote, 
all secret institutions are cursed of God, cursed of God. <laughs> End quote. <laughs> and he was held in contempt and removed from the court, from the, from the, from the trial. Yep. Yeah. And that's that. <laughs> See you later. So then the trial actually began and the prosecution lays out its case and Matthias's attorneys completely demolished the prosecution's murder case. Even though both Ann Folger and Catherine Galloway testified against Matthias, although they both omitted the sex stuff, of course, um, mm-hmm. Henry Western, Matthias's lawyer, did not even call a single witness. After the prosecution rested, he just looked at the judge and asked for dismissal, and the judge just the judge like agreed that there was no case here. Wow. No murder. But before Matthias could celebrate, the district attorney had a surprise. He called for the immediate trial for the assault and illegal imprisonment of Isabella Laisdell, Matthias's daughter. Now, Matthias, who had been defiant throughout the murder trial, wept when his daughter was mentioned. But his lawyer had a surprise of his own. Right after this was brought up, he produced a letter written by Isabella Laisdell that was signed that very morning, claiming she had received full and ample satisfaction for the assault and battery in this case. Western then asked, all charges to be dropped because everything had been satisfied. The prosecutor was like completely flustered, but he called Isabella Laisdell to the stand anyway, just to make sure that this was real. She arrived with her husband. She swore she signed the letter and that she had forgiven her father. And so it looked like the case was going to be over, but the district attorney called Charles Laisdell and he said, well, he didn't exactly agree with his wife, but it was up to the judge whether or not to proceed. The judge decided to continue the case anyway. And when he did, the whole gallery erupted in applause. <laughs> so so yeah. like every, all the, everybody that's there was like, Woo, you're going to try this guy. That's great. So nice. Isab- Isabella got on the stand. She told the story of being whipped when she had arrived. And she explained that it was because she had married Charles without her father's permission. She didn't mention Benjamin Folger or any of that stuff. Now, Matthias's lawyer, Western, could have pushed this issue. In fact, if he had brought up the fact that she slept with Benjamin Folger while married, it probably would have eliminated Charles Laisdell's legal right to say anything about his wife being whipped. So if he had brought this up, Matthias probably would have gotten off. But it would have brought larger issues to the kind of, or would have been kind of a larger scandal, which then could have caused bigger issues, right? Because if he opens that can of worms, then you've got all the other cans of worms about, you know, match spirits and dissolving marriages and wife swapping and all this stuff that, you know, is the kind of stuff that in 18, that in 1834 could get you tarred and feathered. Yeah. Right. Uh Okay. So he didn't bring any of that stuff up. Sure. Charles Laisdell testified that Matthias had violated his rights when he beat his wife, when he beat Charles Laisdell's wife. Right. And he stated that's his property. That's Every his man property. should have his rights. Yep. That's right. <laughs> so he's mad. Somebody else. Yeah, it's pretty awful. It's it's pretty, pretty bananas. Okay. Uh, so after that, the judge instructed the jury, and this is another great one. The judge looked and turned to the jury and said, The case has been proven. The rights of the husband to control his wife supersede the rights of the father to do so, even if the father had paid the husband to leave her, as Matthias had done. So he said, they've proven the case. So the jury, of course, hands back a guilty verdict because the judge just told them, hey, like, I'm glad you're all here. This is a guilty verdict. Go decide it. Um, before sentencing, <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, like, think, think about how crazy that is. Like, the judge is like, when the judge is giving jury instructions, he's like, 
the case is proved. It's it's they did it. They did the job. Like so, go ahead and deliberate, but you have to yep. come back with a guilty. Yeah, it's okay. Um, so Matthias before sentencing gave a speech professing his innocence, but of course the judge was unmoved. Matthias was sentenced to three months in county jail and 30 days for contempt from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. Matthias muttered, it's not true, as the sheriff led him away. Now, after the trial, newspapers Mm -hmm. expressed shock and horror that Matthias managed such a light sentence, four measly months in jail after all this, like all the shenanigans, right? Um, The journalist William Leet Stone uh, wrote a lengthy book complete with an extensive conversation that he had with Anne and Benjamin, but he deliberately left a lot of details out in order to paint the Folgers in the best possible light. Okay, so Gilbert Vale, remember when Matthias first went to Manhattan to pre- when he was preaching in Manhattan and he visited a printer asking for some free printing. Um, he kind of hoped this guy would help him out. Uh, anyway, yes. Yes. his name was Gilbert Vale. I mentioned then that he'd come up again. Well, he had been looking for news of Matthias in the papers ever since he visited his office that day. He just had a hunch this guy was going to turn up again. He published, he ends up, this guy, Gilbert Vale, publishes this long two-volume work that is used extensively for me to do this story. Like a lot of this story comes from Vale's research. So mm-hmm. he wrote a scathing attack on the police back when Matthias was arrested for blasphemy uh, at Sylvester Mills's house because he didn't like Matthias. He thought he was a crazy person, but he thought blasphemy laws were only used to help wealthy men throw poor men in jail. Now, one of Vale's colleagues, Walt Whitman, called Vale a valuable, rare old man to know, but also a hard nut. And with that in mind, Vale tracked down every lead. He interviewed every single person connected to the kingdom in any way. And he produced this like massive, uh, honestly, very hard to follow, but extremely thorough account. Like it sort of mm-hmm. sprawls. It goes all over the place. But like he covers everything. And Vale would be kind of the last contemporary right. treatment of the case, right? The New York Penny Press, you know, they honed their skills in Matthias's trials. They moved on to other sensationalist stories, and they sort of made crime reporting a staple of journalism, obviously, down till today. Now, Penny Press crime stories, the Penny Press crime stories of the day, they actually end up inspiring the work, not just of, you know, Walt Whitman, but Edgar Allan Poe, Herman Melville, Nathaniel Hawthorne. So this is especially true for writers like Poe, Melville, and Hawthorne, because Crime stories provide an avenue for them to explore the kind of evil and deceit behind the the false mask of American ingenuity and innocence. So 20 years after Matthias's trial, Herman Melville published Moby Dick. And in Moby Dick is a chapter that focuses on a prophet named Elijah who foretells Ahab's doom. I'm not saying they're connected, but it's pretty neat. Yeah. (laughs) So, okay, obviously the kingdom ultimately kind of failed to catch on, right? But- Isabella Van Wagenen is ultimately kind of the last uh, believer. Um, but this larger anti-Finneite patriarchal revivalism that happened at the time, it did catch on under more inspired leadership, particularly the Mormons under Joseph Smith and Brigham Young after Joseph Smith was murdered. They ended up championing oh, a yeah. really similar patriarchal hierarchy to what Matthias talked about. And of course, they've carved out an important space in American society. Really, since the 1830s, though, there has been an almost unbroken kind of string of American holy men who followed Matthias's footsteps, converting their own personal disappointments into holy visions of a kind of restoration of fatherly power. Like, this is not weird. During difficult times, mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Uh, some Americans have tried to frame the world in terms of sexual and family norms, fears of widespread sexual perversions. Like in recent years, Jim Jones, David Koresh, Fred Phelps, and even Keith Raniere come to mind. Like the thing is, we tend to think of these people and their movements as temporary blips of like craziness. But these extremist prophets have remarkably been kind of continuously with us in America. And maybe they should be seen as like a, a dark undercurrent of our history rather than like some sort of weird outliers, right? Anyway, to wrap up, I'll give you the, the wrap up of all the people. So to wrap up, Sylvester Mills, uh, you know, he recovered while he was there at Bloomingdale Asylum. He remarried, he returned to business, right. and he was <laughs> successful. He seemingly lived a happy life. Isabella Laisdell, um, she kind of disappeared. We assume she kind of returned to married life with Charles and went to the some town called Skohari. I'm not sure. Now, Benjamin and Ann Folger okay. re- returned to their old lives, actually surprisingly easily. Their Christian friends took pity on them, saw them as victims and, uh, you know, victim culture. Benjamin was successful again, and um, they lived in Sing Sing in Manhattan, and they made a whole bunch of real estate deals and a bunch of money. Good. Hard place you know, the place that was called Mount Zion, was purchased in 1836. It was renamed Beechwood. And then in 1905, the vice president of a bank bought it, added a library pavilion and some new decorations outside. And he used the place as a kind of salon for his celebrity friends. The rooms where Ann Folger Mm -hmm. seduced Mm -hmm. Matthias became stages for Sarah Bernhardt and Isadora Duncan with guests like Henry Ford in attendance. The lawn where Matthias got conned into shaving his beard and fled from Sing Sing villagers became a flying display for the Wright brothers. So that's what happened to the property. Um, Crazy, right? That's awesome. It's it's crazy. Margaret Matthews, uh, she wrote a short memoir as a rebuttal to uh, William Leet Stone's Uh book, and she visited her husband in jail a bunch of times. Uh, But after 1835, she sort of disappears from the record altogether. But I will say this. There's no record of a Margaret Matthews getting a divorce. Now, Matthias, Matthias served his four months. He shaved his beard. He and Isabella Van Wagenen arrived at Margaret's house by carriage after he got out. Margaret rebuffed his his advances and Matthias and Isabella went away. Margaret never saw him again. And like I said, Margaret sort of disappeared off the record shortly after that. Three months later, Matthias was in Kirtland, Ohio, talking with Joseph Smith and his Mormon community. Now, there's some evidence that after that, um, he was in Little Rock in 1839 preaching when a group seized him and shaved his regrown beard. Uh, They threatened him with Dr. Lynch if he didn't leave town. Another report had him living west of the Mississippi. Dr. Lynch. I like it. I like it. Uh, another report had him living west of the Mississippi, preaching to indigenous people in 1841 or 42. But then another source says he died in the Iowa Territory sometime in 1841. Now, all of these could be true. Like, they could all be true. Sure. Finally, Isabella Van Wagenen. She won her slander lawsuit against Benjamin Folger, Folger and was paid $125. She believed that Matthias's reading of the Bible was the most rational she had ever heard. To her, it made far more sense than the Christians. But American life, she had decided, was one great system of robbery, where the rich robbed the poor and the poor robbed each other. She left New York, and she wandered for a number of years. She was always searching for a way to abandon the desire for money and power and truly live the golden rule. Eventually, 
she found her way to New England in the 1840s, and she joined the abolitionist movement. They helped her project an image as a prayerful, freed woman who had labored for white men all her life. She became one of the most powerful voices for abolition and for women in general. I mean, she's, she's one of the most famous abolitionists in American history. Years earlier, Robert Matthews, as Matthias, had called himself a traveler imbued with the spirit of truth. Isabella, too, had become a traveler who learned how to crush her enemies with truth. The spirit came to Isabella and renamed her as well. Her new name was to be Sojourner. Sojourner Truth. Sojourner Truth. That is, do you know Sojourner Truth? No. Oh, that is so disappointing. She is one of the most famous Americans. Like she is. No. Yes. One of the, she is one of the most famous American. She is probably one of the four most famous African-American women in American history. Really? Sojourner Truth. Um, the only, the only African-American woman who's, who's probably more famous is Harriet, is uh, Harriet Tubman. Harriet Tubman. I got you. Um, uh, but she was, she, if you see her oh, picture, yeah. you probably would know who she was. You would recognize I mean, I've her. seen her picture. She looks like, I mean, I, th- I don't know. I could have seen her before. Um, yeah, she's very old. I mean, the picture that usually circulates, she's very old looking, you know. But yeah, she is. Black woman she, to win such a case against white man. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, she's sort of amazing. And she, um, her famous speech was, uh, the real famous speech she said was, was uh, basically the line was, ain't I a woman? Like, she's relying on a lot of this stuff. And she basically was like, you know, look, just because of the color of my skin, like, aren't I also a woman? at this time where people were basically saying women were the moral keepers of their homes. She's right. like, that was her thing. Ain't I a woman? Like, how can I morally keep my home when, when slaves live under threat of having their homes torn apart, fathers sold out from under the roof, right? Children sure. sold out from their parents. If this is what women are supposed to protect the home, this moral, have this moral responsibility to the home, how can we do that when somebody can just destroy the morality of the home out from under us? Ain't I a woman? Don't I deserve the same protection that white women do to be able to protect their own homes? So, I mean, it was, and it became a real sort of powerful rallying cry because it was like, it's a hard argument to, to, you know, it's hard to argue with that. Women are the keepers of the home. Oh, but not these women. That's a hard, you know, it really rallied a lot of abolitionists. You know what I mean? Sure, sure, so, sure. Anyway, that's the big surprise ending is Sojourner Truth is Isabella Van Wagenen. Well, that's interesting because I just looked her up and I swear I'd never have. I bet you when I was walking through either a museum or something, I would look at the plaque and it said her name and sure. yada, 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 all that good stuff. But like, I just, it didn't ring a bell. That's amazing to me. You obviously didn't get enough CRT in your school. <laughs> <laughs> see i mean a better school would have taught you this uh you know well you know <laughs> i don't know about that <laughs> uh, i think that's a really good note to end on uh because yes. uh because it it lined up pretty nicely so it anyway did. It did. all right man i hope you enjoyed well, the story of robert matthews i thought that it's was a great uh, story it's pretty it's a great fun story yeah i think you did a great job Thanks, man. Um, very interesting. Very, very interesting. Well, thank you. So, thank you. 
I'm uh, I, I, I'm going to do less work next time. It's, it's, yeah, I bet you are. I bet going in, you had no idea how much work this. Well, I, I know this story and I know it really well, and that's why I wanted to do it because I thought it. I feel like there's so many elements of the story that that really tie to today. There's some really, you know, uh-huh. like like the stuff about like you know, the, like the, the the working class stuff, the emergence of the middle class. You know, like, like, I don't know. There's just a lot there. There's a lot that I think as sure. a, a kind of like the way that the media operates, like all of these little elements, I think are yep. fun and, uh, and relevant. Sure, sure. And, um, and then, you know, I knew that I knew this like great little twist at the end with Sojourner Truth is a, a really good, you know, sort of, I mean, it's just like a surprise twist at the end is nice. And, um, but then when I went back in and started reading all this stuff, I was like, Oh my gosh, like I remember the story in broad strokes, but my God, when I started to try and write it up, I'm like, there's so many juicy details that it's just hard to, and, and I don't know. And for me, like in order to make the story be what I wanted it to be, where I wanted it to like, I wanted the relevance to today to come through. So I felt like you have to kind of, I don't know, you have to kind of build it up a little bit. You have to build up the, the sure, architecture sure, to, to make sure. sure it all all holds. So, yep, yep, yep. so anyway, I hope it all worked uh, next time. No, 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 next time, uh, next time, it's going to be a much, uh, much lighter tale um you know something something a little easier yeah we'll, we'll spitball <laughs> some ideas here oh i've i've got a i got a list you ready got, to go uh, i've just got a list okay, i just gotta good, find good. uh i just gotta find the stories that are going to be a little uh they aren't going to require quite i mean uh, we'll, we'll do we'll do a long one and a short one a long one and a short one i think <laughs> that's kind of how that works so all right, buddy. There you uh, go. go to bed. Got it, my man. Um, in the meantime, I'm anybody there. likes this I show, you can email us at unbalancedviews at gmail.com. Hopefully, we have a better social media presence soon. All right. And especially beer sponsors. Yeah. Mike would very much like <laughs> to have some commercial, uh, some commercials. All right. On that note, <laughs> yeah. I'll see you Good next night. time. All right, buddy. Okay. Sources for this story. Gilbert Vale, Fanaticism, Its Source and Influence, William Leet Stone, Matthias and His Impostures, uh, Miguel Hernandez, The Prophet Matthias and Elijah the Tishbite in New York Almanac. And the main source was Paul Johnson and Sean Wilentz, Kingdom of Matthias, a story of sex and salvation in 19th century America. 